Welcome to Review the Future, the podcast that takes an in-depth look at the impact of technology on culture. I'm John Perry. I'm Ted Cooper. And today on Future Express, we answer a listener question and we follow up on our interview with Callum Chase. Okay, so we got a listener question, a pair of them, actually, uh, from someone named Penny Tyrell McQueen. And there's two questions. So the first one had to do with the future of citizenship, broadly. What do we think is going to happen with citizenship based on geographic location? Uh, are we going to continue to have that? Right. And that, that seems increasingly arbitrary, right, as, as our world gets uh, more and more connected in other ways. Exactly. If we have a worldwide communication system, it sometimes maybe feels strange that we still have this geographically based citizenship system. Yeah. And I mean, that's a really interesting question. I think it probably would merit its own uh, full episode. I don't have all of the information in front of me now to discuss it at length, but I think there's a lot of interesting questions that come up right away when you think about that. The trend in uh, politics right now seems to be toward, uh, like the long trend has been toward more and more open borders for many years, Mm -hmm. but that trend looks like it may be screeching to a halt and turning the car around, doesn't it? <laughs> We're I seeing mean, a lot of populist movements that are very anti-immigration. And these sort of um, trend-setting nations like the UK and America have uh, recently had either, you know, strong votes in favor of closing the borders or um, big national candidates saying that that's what they want to do. So... Uh, now, I don't know if that's an indication of things to come, though. That might just be like a sort of temporary blip, sort of a wedge issue that politicians are using. Um, yeah, maybe or it could right. be the sign of a, you know, a future where everybody's much more insular. I, I, that seems less likely to me, though. I feel like long term, we've got to get more open, right? I feel like there's just going to be too much pressure not to. Right. Well, and there's already so many services that can cross borders using networks. So you can be a, a worker working in your house in uh, Mexico and you can be doing, um, you know, task rabbit stuff for somebody who's in America. Sure. That's increasingly uh, able to be done. So if we don't uh, find an official way to allow that, then it's just going to you know, happen in an unofficial capacity. I feel like we'll have illegal virtual immigration, I guess is what I'm saying. Right, right. <laughs> and I, I would certainly like to see a more open world with free movement of people. I think that's good just for, you know, competition of ideas and sharing of ideas. Right. So, you know, people and- forget it's the third pillar of that libertarian concept of things, right? It's like you remove tariffs and you remove regulations that prevent capital from moving. But then like the third thing is you're also supposed to open the borders so that the workers can move. The problem is you kind of need all the things to happen at once or exactly. they, they mess each other up. Well, and you need everybody to do it um, right. multilaterally. That's the big thing. It's like if America did that tomorrow as like an example, the thinking goes, we'd be overrun with uh, people who are coming from worse places. And so you need to somehow get everybody to agree to it all at once. <laughs> right. Although, you know, that those concerns about being overrun, I'm not sure how even realistic those are. I'm right? not sure that there's any, yeah, I mean, there's no way to really even uh, study that since it's not happening anywhere. <laughs> because like, if you add more people, right, there's this, th- there's this feeling that, oh, there's like scarce land and jobs and things. And we add more people, they're going to take all that stuff away from us. There's going to be less to go around. 
But in reality, if you add a full citizen to a country who's paying taxes and buying stuff, you know, the whole economy should just grow. And it doesn't necessarily take away from anyone else, especially in a very large body of land like the U.S. Yes. Well, in the U.S., we still have tremendous amounts of undeveloped land, in fact. So uh, at some rate, we can absorb probably a tremendous number of new uh, immigrants. But I don't know of any data out there that points to sort of like what that ideal rate would be or whether there's a rate above which it becomes a problem. My guess is that the rate currently is far below what we could sustain. But anyways, yeah, so we, we, don't, we may come back to this question because I think it's a really good one, but I, I couldn't tell you like a strong prediction of what I think is actually going to happen. Well, right. I mean, there seems to be really big countervailing forces, uh, which is that there's this nationalism like we've seen in the Brexit vote, I think is the best example of Mm -hmm. this, where people seem to be knowingly, as far as I can tell, voting against their own economic interests to keep their uh, country, you know, more culturally homogenous, I guess. That's a nice way to put it. (laughs) I mean, uh, you know, I guess they see some value in that, and I'm trying to kind of not be judgmental about it, but it seems very bizarre to me. Um, I think that this is like a a rare example where you get to use the uh, the Adam Smith term, the invisible hand, in the way it was actually intended, right? It's like in uh, Wealth of Nations, he uses the term, and he says, oh, this is why you don't have to worry about globalization, because the invisible hand of nationalism will keep borders shut, and uh, we won't have a race to the bottom around the world. <laughs> uh and of course, uh, everybody uses that term to mean market forces now. Is that correct? Because I've heard other That's, alternate yeah, you can look it up. quotes of, about so the you, invisible. He's used the term more than once, though, in more than one book. Right? In that book, he uses it only once. And okay. That's the only... I haven't read every one of Adam Smith's books, but that's the one that, you know, is the founding document of capitalism or whatever. Well, so. that's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you can... That's on Google Books. You can check it out. So, I think that's interesting. I think um, I personally would... My instinct is that uh, globalization will not be deterred by nationalism in the long run, and that this will prove to be a blip that harms the English people <laughs> and uh, that they then get over. But, um, but maybe that's wrong. Maybe uh, those feelings are more resilient than I realize. I, I'm willing to take your position and say, I, I don't think those feelings are... like. I think th- this is a hot topic right now for whatever reason we've got this. I mean, it's going on in the US, obviously, too, with, with Trump and so on. But I, I feel like this can't last. <laughs> that would be my prediction anyways. Yeah. I mean, I, it's, it does seem like the technological winds are blowing in the opposite direction. So right. um, I'm, I'm with you on that. I, I think it'd be interesting to maybe look at, you know, whatever data is out there to sort of see what the best way to handle citizenship is because i'm not sure i even know like i'm wondering whether citizenship is even really like a necessary thing for the world well you want to know i i I mean for taxes really is why you need citizenship right i mean that's why nations need citizenship i mean so that they can uh deliver you know they can collect taxes and deliver services to people who actually paid the taxes right that's the only justification i can think of yeah but can't you just collect taxes on residents you know just not worry about it well, certainly if you're collecting taxes... Especially if you do it the way we do it in the U.S., where you take it out of paychecks for the most part. That's true. I mean, it depends how you collect the taxes. And if you're collecting, you know, uh, taxes on, on purchases and so on, like retail tax, obviously it's right. not an issue at all. Right. Um, because anyone can show up in your country and they end up paying it. Right. Um, 
So yeah, it depends on your tax particular tax scheme. Yeah, maybe it seems like I mean, obviously we're probably not going to like undo all the social machinery around citizenship, but if you were designing a society from scratch, I'm not 100% sure why you'd even have it. Right, right. I mean, I guess you could have just some other way to say that like, I mean, they you to find out well, yeah, no, I have, I, I have I mean, no idea. I was, I was about to propose a different way, but I didn't have one. So uh, let's let's move on because Penny had another question. Yeah, okay. Um, which is, uh, uh, I'm going to quote here. Something else I'd be interested in is a beginner's reading list. Your suggestions on books and articles that listeners might want to start out with if they feel a bit out of the future loop. Um, <laughs> We're all out of the future loop, Penny. So don't feel bad. Right. None of us know what's going to happen. We just pretend like we do. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I thought this was a good question because we've been doing this a long time and we're super steeped in this stuff. And I'm sure we reference things all the time that we don't explain and try to get better about that. Yeah. I'm trying to, to, to stop when we do that, but uh, it's hard. Yeah, exactly. Um, but here's, I would actually start with that some of our recent guests have written books that are I think we've actually described them as good places to start. That's right. Um, I think uh, Kevin Kelly's book, uh, The Inevitable, mm-hmm. it's uh, a bit more conservative than some of your more singularitarian, transhumanist type stuff. Right. Um, but I think it's a good survey of a lot of possible trends, and it's very entertaining to read. I think both of Callum Chase's books, Surviving AI, is kind of a pretty broad survey of the danger of superintelligence. The Economic Singularity, which we just had him talking about, is a pretty good survey of the technological unemployment debate. Right. Um, and I would say you got to read The Singularity is Near by Ray Kurzweil, because while you know not everyone has positive opinions about Kurzweil, and there's certainly criticisms that can be made of his work in that book, I feel like that's just such an influential work. Yeah, it's really the monumental sort of cultural touchstone that uh, inspired, I think, you know, a considerable amount of the this movement and its popularity. Uh, so it's definitely worth reading. And some parts of it, I think you'll disagree with, but that's, you know, that's part of the fun of this actually is reading things you disagree with. Yeah. I mean, if you, if you start with that book, then you can kind of branch out from there and later discover reasons why you think that book might be wrong. But it just as a, as a sort of mind blowing introduction to a lot of very radical futurist topics, that's a good place to start. Yeah, I agree. Um, now I was also, so that's sort of the beginners list. I was also kind of thinking about like, what would I include in a more in depth reading list? If we were say doing like a class, this is a hardcore nerds list on this stuff or something. Right. And I feel like there's some old essays I would go back to. Okay. Like Alan Turing's essay. Sure. Computing machinery and intelligence. Mm-hmm. Uh, which talks about the Turing test. If you've ever heard of that. Good idea to go back and read that. What's great about articles like that is that they're just for free online, right? Because, right. Yeah, just they're an old academic paper. Mm-hmm. Also, uh, I.J. Good's article, uh, Speculations Concerning the First Ultra-Intelligent Machine. Oh, right. Yeah. Uh, which is about, I mean, that's where the idea of an intelligence explosion, I believe, was first posited. Right. Um, so that would be a good one to go back and read. Uh Werner Vinge's article, The Coming Technological Singularity. Right, which is, that's the coining of that term. The modern usage of that in, term. In yeah. the non-mathematical context, in the context. Well, of like, apparently, uh, John von Neumann used it. Uh, oh, really? like, like, I think he actually predates Vinge, but Vinge sort of put it together with 
That John von Neumann, he's always managing to publish first. I don't know if he, I couldn't find if he actually published it anywhere. I, I, he might have just said it to people. But he, he, he talked about the singularity in that way. But Vinci kind of stitched it together and put it in the package that then was taken by Kurzweil and popularized further and so on. Got it. Um, there's, there's tons of articles by uh, both Bostrom, Nick Bostrom, and uh, Eliezer Yudkowsky online that are really good about the dangers of superintelligence. But I would say at this point, just read Bostrom's book, Superintelligence. Right. That pretty much sums them up and it's a well-organized book. Yeah. I mean, that's just going to cover that whole scary argument about, you know, where AI destroys the world, to, yeah. to put it simply. Yeah. Um, I think, oh, here's another really old one. Um, uh, John Maynard Keynes. Uh, oh yeah, now we're going back to like the 30s or Yeah, something. yeah, economic <laughs> possibilities for our grandchildren Right You can find this online, this is the original Like technological unemployment Yeah, that's where uh, that term was popularized Story, yeah Exactly, like, yeah, yeah. Um, Still pretty interesting actually So he posits that the end of work is, you know, coming in about 10 years He's thinking it's going to take about as long as some of the most, you know, optimistic uh, folks around today are thinking Right, exactly Kind of interesting um, if you want a more modern take on technological unemployment that's written by actual economists, then there's The Second Machine Age. Right, right, which is Eric Brynjolfsson and Andrew McAfee's book. And which we reviewed in some episode that I don't remember the number of. Yeah, an early episode. It was a while ago now. I'll find it and put it in the show notes. Uh, there's also the issue of um, life extension, right? Right. Uh, which, which Kurzweil talks about in The Singularity is Near, but there's books like 100 Plus by Sonia Arison. Right. It's a pretty good survey of that. That is a good uh, start if you want to get into life extension. Yeah. Yeah. Um, the Hedonistic Imperative by David Pierce. Oh, yeah. That's another advanced, that's advanced more, one. Yeah, yeah. That's if like more wanna, like philosophy. You want to really dive into uh, the question of like engineering out unhappiness from all living things. Right, that's dealing with the problem of unhappiness. Yeah, and like in the broadest construable way, really. Which is its own singularity, maybe, <laughs> like where, you know, if, if nobody is upset or unhappy or feels pain anymore, that does seem like a break with the rest of history for sentient beings anyways. Right, right, where you can't maybe make that many analogies to how we live now. Right. Yeah. Although we had David Pierce on the show, yes. so you could also go listen to that. Yes, you can check out that episode. Um, another really important book, I think, is The Transparent Society by David Brin. Oh, yeah. So whenever we talk about covalence, or this idea that maybe the future doesn't have any privacy, maybe we can't do anything about that, but what we can do is at least make sure that it's not one-sided, that it isn't just the government watching us, that we're also watching the government, and that it's an even-handed surveillance future. Uh, Transparent Society by David Brin is pretty much one of the first books presenting that argument. So it's a good one to check out. And that's, I, I don't know. I mean, that's enough. Like that's, that's probably, a long list. that's probably overwhelming, but, uh, but yeah, I, I think what I'll probably do is put this list together on our website and post it. Oh, that's a good idea. Um, so people can look at this later. Uh, but, but good questions, Penny, and please send us more questions. We'll take on anything. Can't say we'll get it right, but <laughs> yeah, well, we'll try. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I wanted to do a little bit of follow up on our discussion with Callum Chase, and I had a little bit of a back and forth with him on Twitter, and a little bit of back and forth with him on the show. Oh yeah, where I was, you know, expressing some skepticism about this issue, and 
I, first of all, I want to preface all of this by saying I am concerned about technological unemployment. I mean, I think at the very least, um, you know, we might have a pretty big disruption in the labor market where, you know, people are moving out of jobs and maybe too old to get new ones. And we might have, you know, that might be an extra burden on social welfare programs and so on. Like I could see, even if like long term, there's no technological unemployment problem, I could see like just having a sort of an awkward transition. Yeah, it's all about how quickly this transition occurs, I think. Right, right. So I, yeah, I, I, yeah and I, and I, so I definitely think it's a real thing. It's just like the scope of it. I, I mean, think, I feel like all we're ever arguing about is sort of the scope of it. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it's really easy to talk past each other because um, someone can say, well, what about this? Humans can do this. And the other person can say, well, a robot can do that. And you just, I mean, of course, the truth is eventually a robot will do everything better than a human. Right. Or think, cheaper than a human. Yeah. Least. I mean, unless you have some, unless you think there's some hard limit on technology that we can't cross. And I certainly don't think that. And I think most of our listeners wouldn't think that. Then, yes, inevitably, we're going to have to deal with this time in history where a robot can do everything a human can do, but better. The thing about that is, unless we close the loop with machines at that point and actually merge with them, as Ray Kurzweil wants to do, if we're still separate entities from them, if they're better than us at everything, then we will be obsolete. But the thing is, then we have much bigger problems, right? Then we have problems of, you know, are, <laughs> we're, we're now no longer the most important species on the planet. You know, the kinds of things that Callum raises in his first book, Surviving AI. So it's almost like it's at that point, it's sort of dumb to talk about jobs because there's much bigger stakes once you get to that point. Right. And it's really not then that I'm worried about anyway, because at that point, we also are assuming that we have tremendous abundance from all these robots doing all this work. Well, but the so cons- then we have distributional problems, but we don't necessarily have problems of people starving to death or, or having bad lives because they don't have work. It's true because if the, well, there's the issue of benevolence, like are the robots nice to us or Sure. Not? Well, yeah, we don't want to be turned into paper clips or anything like that. But, but you're right. Like if they have that, if their capabilities are that vast right. and they're benevolent, then we're going to be fine. Right? Right. Well, as long as we're benevolent to each other too. I mean, we have internal human distribution problems potentially, but I'm not worried about what happens when all the robots are doing all the jobs better than the humans. I'm only worried about what happens when, you know, to pick a, a number out of the air, 25% of people who are currently in the labor force can't find a single thing that they can do better than a robot right, to so sell to the market. And the rest, the 75% of us who are still in the marketplace, you know, think those people are lazy and don't have much sympathy for them. That's the scenario that worries me. And I don't know how likely that scenario is, but I think it's more than zero chance. So. Right. So is there a halfway point and is it going to, you know, where is that halfway point? I mean, right. like, and does it last five years or 20 years too? Because that's a big issue. That's the thing is how long does it last, right? Because yeah. uh, it's very possible that, you know, AI will bridge the last, you know, 20% to full human capability, like very rapidly, right? Whether right. it's, um, you know, Robin Hanson's scenario where we develop uploads and all of a sudden we just are straight up copying whole people. Right. Or whether it's, you know, this other scenario where we just have a sudden breakthrough in how to program AI that gets us extremely functional and artificial intelligence very quickly in a matter of a couple years, Mm -hmm. um, then it's like there's not much of a dangerous transition point there because it's just like we're already right into that next phase. So it's kind of it's got to kind of be like the right pace to have an actual technological unemployment problem, right? It's got to be the sort of middle pace where it's kind of slow... 
uh, but humans can't find somewhere else to go. Uh, and that's right. what I'm skeptical about, right? That, that it's like, how long is that period? And, you know, how bad really is that? Um, yeah, well, I think that's where there's a lot of variability. So in the best case scenario, it's a short period and it moves into this next more abundant period where the problems are easier problems to solve uh, quickly. But I don't think there's any particular evidence one way or the other about how fast this will occur. So I don't have strong confidence that it right. will be quick or yeah. that it will be slow. I mean, I just don't know. Now, like, like currently, I'm feeling a, just a little bit skeptical that, like, it just seems like maybe there are a lot of jobs left. Like, a lot of, um, there's, like, a lot of road to tread with capitalism between here and the end point. Because, yeah, okay, so we get rid of drivers, and we get rid of retail, and I understand that's a huge percentage of the labor force now. Right. Uh, but I feel like, well, first of all, just because, you know, that doesn't mean that your AI is great at all tasks yet, right? So like you could automate all retail, all fulfillment, warehouses, driving, all those things, and still not have a good enough robot housekeeper or hairstylist, say. Because those seem That's like correct. those seem like harder problems to solve, right? Yeah. And I, I I don't expect we'll have robot housekeepers on the same scale that we'll have um end to end delivery uh, all automated. Right. Because one has like, you know, like when you're dealing with roads, right? Roads can be standardized. When you're dealing with uh, delivery systems, those can be standardized. Retail can be standardized. But non things that aren't standardized in the same way, like actually exploring someone's house and cleaning all the dirty parts of it. Well, uh, even just recognizing like what constitutes dirty is right. so that's a very subjective uh, question that even trained humans sometimes have problems with. Right. So that one seems like a hard one for machines. And my point is not that a machine won't do that. I think eventually a machine will be a great no, it just seems harder to... It just seems like that's another rung on the ladder. Right. Plus and the I... dexterity of a house. Yeah. Well, what's going to happen is housekeeping isn't actually one job. It's a job title, but it's not one task. Mm-hmm. And I think those tasks are going to get chipped away at. Like we have Roombas now, which are you know, pretty good right. robot vacuum cleaners. They don't clean your house, but they can act as a vacuum cleaner without your attention for most of the time. They'll get better, obviously. I think there'll be robots that clean your bathroom, uh, that crawl along the tile, you know, or something like that. But I don't think there'll be a single robot or even a suite of products that completely replaces the house. Right. But the point is that these things are going to fall one after another, but they're not necessarily going to fall at once. No, I don't think they will. And if they do fall at once, then again, we're back to that, like, fast forward to the end point. And a housekeeper is just one example. I mean, there's, there's, sure. there's a lot of other things that, are, that would be difficult to do, even when you could have pretty incredible self-driving cars and so on. Right. It's also interesting, like, we, we've ragged on the Luddite fallacy a lot, but we've never really indulged it. So the Luddite fallacy says that the reason that technological unemployment doesn't happen right. is that what the automation makes goods and services cheaper. Yes. And that drives increased demand. And then that increased demand causes the industry related industries to grow, which right. then causes them to hire more people, which is true to the extent that the demand is elastic. It's true. But I think like, let's take self-driving cars, right? Right. That's going to drive down the price in time and effort and energy and probably just straight up dollars of travel and attention and going out. Well, it's going to free up more attention because now there's all this extra time people have when they're, riding in their car and they don't right. have to be paying attention to the road where they can consume content. Right. Um, so there's that. Or they can also engage in communications 
you know, uh, they can do work or they can talk to people or, you know, it doesn't have to be consuming. Right. And they can also go out more easily. So they can, they'd be more likely to travel to the next city or to go out and do things in their current city. Yeah. Or to just the fact they don't have to park, I think will nudge me to go out more often. <laughs> right. And that could drive, you know, and plus if it's overall cheaper, you know, if it's cheaper than say owning a car right now is in, in, in LA to just, you know, hire the automated taxi service whenever you need to get somewhere. Right. That's a whole bunch of extra income I'm going to have. And it's going to be easier for me to go out. And I have a feeling I'm going to go out in the city and spend money on things that I've never conceived of I wanted. Right. Uh, well, but again, you know, we covered this in earlier episodes. Like the question is, what are you going to spend that money on? Are you going to spend it on an awesome computer that's going to do almost everything you want? No, I think people... Or are you going to spend it on a lot of little, you know, experiences? And I, I mean, I, I guess... Yeah, I think some of that money will go out into the economy as restaurant dinners or shows or something. But I think a tremendous amount of it is going to go right back into the ephemeral economy of, you know, getting a really nice computer and nice VR glasses and then experiencing a lot of low cost or free uh, digital experience. Maybe, but here's the thing, right? There's a lot of, I mean, money, we all want to get money points from each other. We're going to be really ingenious at extracting money points from each other. Sure. I mean, that's sort of how the economy works. So it's like if everybody just decides to live this austere life where, which honestly you can practically do now in a, well-developed country like the u.s and just you know cut your spending down to almost nothing you know right. and and only you know consume free things if if all of society did that then capitalism would i feel like would collapse tomorrow but as long right, as we're right. invent like dry left this like engine of marketing creating demands as long as you know people right uh, our culture does not produce a majority of people who do that and we probably aren't going to see a massive cultural revolution that that changes that anytime soon i guess the thing that is, seems maybe self-reinforcing to me about this is if you have people who are losing work, let's say they used to drive a car or they used to work in a call center and now a machine can do their job, uh, and then those people, through necessity, are choosing this sort of cheaper lifestyle, that could cause a deflationary situation where the economy isn't growing. It could if it happens uh, really quickly. Um, I, I think, you know, I mean, I'm a little more optimistic maybe about retraining because it's like the same technology that replaces people and does their job can also be purposed for education and retraining. And we've talked about augmented reality. We've talked about if you have a heads up display that sure. can literally, you know, project things onto the world. It, you can have like a real life tutorial that I feel like can. Right. You can learn by doing yeah, uh, much, much more effectively. Get you up to speed very quickly. Right. right. Um, things like that. I, I, I feel like it may not be as hard to retrain people as we're imagining. And again, I'm not, I'm not expecting truck drivers to become programmers. I think that's totally wrong. I'm expecting truck drivers to participate in a new service industry that's like taking place, you know, all these retail locations that we have that we're not going to need anymore because everything's arriving in Amazon drones. It's just like going to be lying fallow and it's going to be repurposed, I think, for places to have social experiences in with other human beings. Like, I, I really think that's the future. These sort of engineered, created social experiences that I think are going to be designed to be tremendously fun and very cheap. Well, they'll have to be very cheap because they're going to be competing with ever-improving VR, right? Well, but the thing is that VR doesn't, doesn't undermine this because if you're still interacting in VR with other people, right... 
I mean, like VR doesn't solve the problem of creating an interesting agent to interact with. Like, again, like you, like if you're in VR, you're going to be in VR with other people. You know, if really good human actors would make your VR experience more interesting, then those human actors could be employed. Right. And I, I, I think that that's right. Well, it depends on the business model of the VR. But if the business model that's followed is Facebook's business model, then, you know, the entertainment is provided for free. Advertising pays the bills. You are the product and the people designing the experience and the space do so in order to keep you there as much as possible so that they can sell your eyeballs to advertisers. Right. Um, which that seems to me like the most likely VR model, but maybe there'll be, I, I think there'll also be another model where you pay money and it's more like um, uh, online games are now or something where it's like a social experience built around some kind of world or game and uh, you pay for access to it and then you have great freedom within that. You know, I, I, just think, I just think if you have on, if you have this great technology, yeah. Right. And you have really smart entrepreneurs who are, who can draw upon this slack resource of all these unemployed people and probably get them for pretty cheap, right? Uh-huh. Um, because if we are having an automation problem, it's going to drive down the cost of labor. I feel like if that's, that's going to incentivize them to figure out like what, can, what cool experiences can we create with all of these recently unemployed people that are like better than any game or experience that you've ever had. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I just got to imagine that people are going to take advantage of that and do some pretty interesting things. Um, yeah, I don't disagree that that will be a dynamic and interesting space in the economy. I think that's true. Uh, whether it is large enough in terms of the people it employs and the money it pays them, yeah, I guess I don't know how big I think that piece is because it's limited by the attention of the people who would pay for it, right? The participants, ostensibly they're going to c- still be working jobs to be making the money that mm-hmm. they have. And so they'll have some amount of leisure time. We don't know how much. And you know, that will limit the size of that market. So maybe there's enough uh, for that to be a big enough sector to, to make a big difference. And uh, maybe not. I'm not sure. I mean, I think it, what are people going to do with their time, especially if they're recently unemployed or like, well, they, if they're they, recently unemployed, they don't have money. So they're not customers. And if they are employed, they might be working really hard to keep that job, especially if this is a kind of winner take all economy where everybody is, you know, with machines helping them to, to do more and to raise their productivity. Right. Um, I think all of that's true. Uh, what, what I really mean to say is people are going to have potentially more free time in the sense of like, again, if they're not driving their own cars to work. Uh, right. Like, you know, that's what technology frees up time and then we immediately use it for other things, right? They're sure. going to use it for working and entertainment like they always do. Right. Um, and I feel like, People are going to get bored unless you're giving them new types of entertainment. And I don't know. Sure. Entertainment will be some part of the mix. Yeah. And, and, I, and I, let's, yeah, that's, that's obvious. Yeah. But like, I think entertainment is a big part of the mix. I think, again, we think of these as luxury goods too. Like things like where people go to um, a nice dinner and they get waited on or they go to a bar and they get waited on um, or they go to a stylist and they get waited on. And I think like the trend with these kinds of luxury goods is they they become not luxury goods over time. They become like the ordinary product over time. And then the rich people move on to something else that has more status. Right. But I also think, you know, I think elder care is a thing worth pointing out. Like, 
Um, or just care in general. Like the care industry is vastly understaffed now. Right. The labor is too expensive to provide the care that people need. Right. And it seems obvious that a large sinkhole, to me, actually, this is the, the largest one that I can personally see, right. is what, uh, care. Just, you know, caring for children, caring for people with disabilities, caring for older people, um, teaching. That's a part of the economy that, for a variety of reasons, some of which I think have to do with sexism, honestly, has been, like, underpaid and understaffed and undervalued mm-hmm. forever. And I think that will change. I think that's actually... In a way, that's the most hope I have for the future. You know, uh, almost all of what you need to do as a caretaker is it comes from with just being a human. <laughs> um, and, you know, you, I, that seems like, like I can actually imagine a taxi driver today being retrained and put to work as an orderly in a elderly facility and that actually working out. But what do you think of, I mean, related to care, you brought up education, which I feel like is kind of its own... It, there's a Dang. fuzzy line. It's like, you know, daycare and then, you know, it's a fuzzy line. But yeah, I think education is another thing that there's a lot of room if our society decides to do this, to spend more on it and make it better and redesign it with technology, as you were talking about, to be more effective. I, I don't know if that will happen or not, because it's sort of surprising to me that some of that hasn't happened yet. <laughs> yeah, I, I look at education but, and I wonder why more of it isn't automated so I, I I think there's some weird market distortions in that. Field yeah, yeah. Because it's so much government involvement. Yeah, education is not is not one I was actually going to propose as one that I'm very hopeful about. But I I think it, I think there's room for growth there. I don't know that societally it's going to happen. What I think might have growth is a more personalized sort of advising, right? Like 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 I mentioned actually a hairstylist earlier, and you could include that, or just like any kind of stylist or home decorator. Or anybody that like helps you like curate and guide you through things or gives you advice on things that are best for you. Sure. Because I feel like that, you know, we've got recommendation algorithms and all that stuff. Sure. There's competition from computers there, but there is also something we trust maybe more or we enjoy more about a human being expressing their taste and mm-hmm. all of that. And I kind of feel like that's going to be one of those things where maybe the top designers can get more work done because they can rely on low-level algorithms for some of their job, right. but they'll still, their their taste will still pro, uh, command a premium. Right, and there's two points here, because again, you can always say, well, okay, a robot could do that eventually, and yes, a robot could do that eventually, but unless the robot can do all these things all at once, right, it's going to be, again, be a series of dominoes that are going to fall. And it's going to be one of these situations where fewer people are doing more work, where productivity is going up, but where there still exists a job with that type of you know name or category. Is that what you're saying? Um, I, I guess what I'm saying is with any one of the job categories we're predicting. Yeah. Right? Well, let me, let me put it this way. So there are jobs that I think depend to some extent on consciousness. Okay. On conscious beings being there. Okay. And those to me seem like the most resilient. Right. <laughs> they're going to be the last ones. But I you... don't only, and I, I think those are interesting, but I don't only want to talk about those. That's why I brought up the housekeeper earlier, because there's also jobs that I think are just going to la- be harder to get rid of even, w- at, you know, they're going to be like later on the list. Right. It doesn't maybe require consciousness, but it requires a kind of subjective judgment that's just hard to program. It qu- requires a step beyond today's extreme tech demos. Like, you know, like several couple, steps. Several yeah. steps. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Agree. So there's that category, which yeah. I think is pretty rich uh-huh. and is like good for the short term. Right. Plumbers. And, and, yeah. Plumbers is a good example. You know, stuff like that. Right. Like all kinds of home stuff, home installation of things and uh, like 
anyone who comes into your house and does work pretty much, unless your house is super standardized, I feel like. Right. Um, well, there might be like new ways of building houses in the future that, that make that more standardized. But if you're, yeah, traditional houses, already built structures of which there is a lot, they need pretty complex human um, interactions for maintenance. Right. But yeah. let's talk about the most resilient category, which okay. is like anything driven by consciousness. I would kind of put, I would put care in that category. That's one of the reasons I think it's pretty resilient is, and, and maybe there'll be a massive cultural shift on this. Callum was pointing out that in Japan, people are happy to be cared for by robots or well, whatever. Okay. Yes. But in Japan, they have a particular problem of a, a very top heavy population, not a lot of young people, a lot of old people. And so of course, being that, and they're also the world's leader in robotics, not surprisingly, they are going after elder care robotics in a big way. And yeah, they are going to develop robots that can pick an old person out of their chair and stuff like that, or they are already developing these things. But I don't think that's going to stop that at the right price, people will prefer a human caretaker. Yeah, I think most in, people... In many cases. Yeah, unless it's a vast price difference, I think most people would rather that granny be taken care of by an actual human being. Yes, even if there's a robot on premises that helps them with the lifting or something, you're going to want a human overseeing the care, I think. I still feel like that's a pretty safe job uh, unless human labor gets so much higher uh, cost than, uh, than the cost to run a robot. Right, which, you know, eventually, maybe... Eventually, but doesn't look like it's likely. So, um, yeah. Yeah, and, and so, yeah. so yeah, so, like, that is a big category mm-hmm. where consciousness matters. Um, I think uh, Callum himself brought up art, and I think, mm-hmm. to me, that relates to the whole, like, when we were talking about a stylist or a decorator or getting, like, sort of... That's getting artistic input from somebody in a very narrow sense, but I think, like, anything that requires curation of things or taste anything that requires taste i feel like yes the robots will have good taste they'll have algorithms and data and in you know information but because i feel like all this stuff is based on fashion and it's all moving target and like it the humanness of it i feel like is very important i feel like there's potentially like you know a lot of room for wanting a conscious being to be you know sharing its taste with you that you might prefer that particular being's taste than that which comes from a robot you know yeah, we'll see about that. I mean, that's my view of the current world. Yeah. Like, I use robot recommendations, and I use human-driven recommendations. And at the moment, my human-driven recommendations are working better for me most of the time. Um, not that I never find anything interesting from the algorithms, mm-hmm. but just, I'd say, success ratio seems better with the humans. But I'm not sure that that's going to last. Actually, it does seem like that's slipping. Um, I yeah, I, I see progress there, but and I, I definitely think there are some major things that need to be overcome in the on the machine side, uh, in terms of tunability and being able to interact with the recommendation and and refine it. Um, but uh, but I'm talking about something know. something broader than that, right? Because what we have now are vast archives on Netflix or Amazon of stuff that's already human made, already has a lot of human care and artistry that went into it right it's and not it's, composing the music and it's thing. just the machine trying to like match it to you mm-hmm. right and it's you know and i think that that's different than creating something for you right which is if again if you hire a decorator or a stylist they're creating something for you on the spot um oh that's i think um maybe too generous i th- on some level they're buying something for you <laughs> 
Well, fine. If you right. hire, I mean, I, at least a like an interior decorator doesn't usually fabricate any of their own stuff. Usually, they are essentially a personal shopper. I mean, they're looking at all the options that are out there and they're helping you make choices among products. Well, uh, yeah, except that I think the products that we're going to have in the future are going to be more customizable. So it might be more like you know they they model a thing and then three D print it for you, right? They like they make you exactly the chair you want to the specs you want. They don't just pick it out of a catalog right but, right well and we have artisans and things now so of course that happens at the high end now too they, yeah they would de- you know help you pick out a chair design from a book of chair designs and then you have a person build it for you so of course in the future that'll be cheaper because robots will do it but that happens now i mean we have that now right but i think like to just have anything made for you let's just make it broader sure right? like would be a lot cheaper so right custom bespoke whatever you want to call it that's been that's on a trend line to get cheaper and more accessible. I agree. Right, but you still like is the is the are these general algorithms that say Amazon is developing that are good at just like picking a thing out of a database that's already made. Uh-huh. And like saying, well, a lot of other people liked it, so here's a view. Is that at all the same as somebody coming up with a new design to plug into a 3D printer that's specifically to your specs working with you and having a conversation with you about what it is you want? And I, I realize this sounds like a major luxury item, but again, no, I think I mean, this stuff gets I, cheaper. I feel like those things are on a spectrum. I don't think, obviously, that's not available now, but there, it seems to me like customization and conversation uh, and you know, subtle language processing, it seems to me like these are all things that are improving at the moment that are in the realm of our extreme tech demos these days and that I could see in a not-too-distant future coming together and basically eliminating any value of the human other than, you know, liking the human. So how, how much do we think liking the human really matters here? For me, if I was like ordering custom furniture, I don't think doing it from a human would be inherently better than doing it from a machine as long as I could get... When you watch a movie, do you care yeah. to ask a more extreme question? Do you care if it's made by a human or not? Well, so I have never seen a movie that uh, made sense to me that was made by a hum- uh, by a machine, but I am not totally convinced, and I mentioned this to Callum on the show, that uh, that, that would be at all a problem for me, and I think I would just, I mean, I, I agree that art has to have sort of a creator, but I think I would just locate the creator somewhere else, like the person who wrote the software that made the machine, or the CEO of the company that provided okay, the software, let or me, something like that. I didn't get to say this on that show, though, but here's the thing, yeah. right? If somebody writes an algorithm to make a movie. Yeah. If they run the algorithm once yeah. and they post the movie, yeah. then it's just that person using a novel way right. to create a movie. Right. And I don't think there's anything different about that at all. They just did it quicker in a different fashion. If somebody creates an algorithm that generates infinite movies yeah. every time you run it, yeah. right, then I do think you've lost something in, a, in the sense that like, You've gained something pretty impressive, at least as a gimmick. I don't know if it would, but I think what you lose is, like, if there's infinite movies, like, you don't have a singular statement. So it's like, I sit down and I watch the one movie, and then I want to talk about that movie with other people, and I guess I can share the random seed with them or something, and they can call up the same movie. Yeah. But it just seems like so. It's not as it's not as singular. I think the... Yeah, I disagree with that. I understand what you're saying, but... I, my point of view is different because 
first off, uh, ostensibly these would be recorded, so you could, of course, share them after they were generated. But even if, uh, let's say, this is a machine that reads your like brain state and then auto generates a movie mm-hmm. just for you, um, it's going to do. I think infinite's a tricky word because okay, we mean unlimited, but of course, there's like some because there's the limited time, so there's like some finite amount of movies that get generated with this thing. Mm-hmm. And whatever that number is, even if it's very large, there are going to be tendencies and similarities uh, and um, patterns that can be detected when you have a uh, John Co. movie experience. They always, you know, put you in a better mood. But when you have a Horror Co. movie experience, they always scare you, even though they're always completely different movies. So I think actually we'll end up with genres of movie generators, we'll end up with creators of movie generators who have branded identities. I agree with all of that. And like, I think that actually, while it is different than a movie written by a person, I mean, I agree it's a different art at that point. It still, I think, will qualify as an art in every way. Well, but I think that there is a spectrum here, like, because art is a sort of form of communication, right? Mm-hmm. And it, so it's like, if I go into the basement and I program my movie making algorithm and it was just me and I made it and then you watch the movie that it's made. I mean, that's in terms of communication, like there's, we're not a lot of steps removed from each other. Not a lot more than a traditional movie, which is made by a giant team of people. Right. (laughs) I mean, for example, no, exactly. But I, but I think, you know, all, I mean, all automation originates with a human at some point. Right. Right. So it's like, I, I feel like there is a point though at which it doesn't feel personal. I don't know what it is that causes something to feel like divorced enough, like you're divorced enough from the creator that it doesn't have a personal touch anymore. Um, but that definitely happens. I mean, it's not like every like mass produced product, is, you know, that I own, like feels like it has a personal touch or feels like art to me. No, that's true. And uh, that's made clear by the fact that, uh, you know, Tupperware and uh, Apple computers are like in the Museum of Modern Art, but yeah. not every product is. Right. I mean, those are products that somehow through their branding and their close identification with the companies that make them, they've become, you know, and through their design principles as well and the aesthetics of their designs, they become something more than just a product according to some cultural institution. I mean, obviously that's just their opinion, but yeah, I mean, I think that's right. I think it's, there is something, there's maybe some threshold somewhere, but I have no idea where it would maybe be. Where like you're just like okay, well, this is just a computer now. Like someone, obviously, a human being touched like, this programming at some point, but it's just like not a, interesting. You know, a computer program that writes AIs wrote an AI that then created a software program that then makes. I don't think you need anything that fancy. Like, I think I, modern day like mass production already has this effect on most things, and it's not as fancy as a program writing a right. Program or maybe all it, all it has to be is that the algorithm. Uh, is has insufficient voice. You know, the algorithm produces an insufficiently brandable or recognizable type of movie. Like, I'm imagining that these things are going to be uh, specific and sort of like, you know, micro-generic, mm-hmm. like in the way that all, you know, basically all modern art is now. Yeah. Commercial art. So uh, I, I, I don't see any reason why that would stop. Um, so... If it's not that way, if you just have a movie-making algorithm that makes a completely random experience, then maybe maybe that 
fails to connect to people. I don't know. Maybe. Yeah. I, this is all super interesting, but <laughs> since, since we got to wrap up, soon, let, wrap me, up yeah. let me touch on a couple other things. Okay. Um, attention. We, I've mentioned this a million times, but I'm just going to mention it again. If you've got a whole bunch of people on the planet making stuff, communicating with each other, what they all want from each other, whether it's for the purposes of making money or not. I mean, you know, when you traditional advertising, you pay for attention because you're going to sell somebody a product. But I feel like the human desire for attention goes well beyond, you know, market profitability. Sure. Like people just want to be paid attention to. Kings building castles and that sort of thing. Yeah. Well, we've never made any money off this podcast, but I want people to listen to it. And we spent a lot of effort on making it. And it's like, I, I think... Such an attention whore, John. I know I am. But the, I think everybody is. That's yeah. my thesis here. No, I, I think that's right. I mean, I think... Um, and I think that's super monetizable. And I don't know... Like, see, Kevin Kelly wrote about this in his book. And I think, like... I don't think that his scheme was great. But I think there is room, possibly in the future, for a distributed attention-sharing, peer-to-peer system... Where it's like, I have something that I want people to pay attention to, and somewhere out there are the perfect people for this. But at a certain point, like, I also just want people to give something a chance, and like, just surely convincing them that like, it's a good fit for them may not be good enough, and like, so there may need to be some money there. I mean, that's what, that's what, where the money comes in, is it comes to actually buying people's attention, which sounds sort of gross, right? Because we associate it with advertising, and it sounds unpleasant. But I think like, I think people will be willing to buy attention, uh, like increasingly in the future. Maybe ordinary people will buy attention. Um, right. And we've seen some moves toward that as far as like, it's pretty accessible to buy online ads. Right. Now, what we don't see right now is we don't see people getting paid in dollars for their attention. Uh, instead, we're getting paid. Not in, directly. No. We're, we're getting paid in services. We're getting right gmail we're getting facebook right we're getting amazing tools for free yeah and entertainment too because we're selling our attention yeah the question is like can that at some point turn into something where we're actually getting paid for our attention i think it's possible i can't you know say for sure right i don't see the business model that like works tomorrow for that no but i i see what you're saying and uh it may come to pass that people willingly uh, and in a non-dystopic sort of like, you know, advertising rules the world sort of way, but just willingly pay attention to things that are matched well to them, uh, but that are sponsored and, and, and reap some, some monetary reward from doing so. Yeah, exactly. So, so imagine getting like a message. So-and-so in Nebraska has a band and they, they think you'll like it based on your profile. Right. And if you just, you know, you listen to two whole songs all the way through, you know, you're going to, you're going to make $5 or something. Right. And you'd say, well, yeah, I'm just sitting here in my self-driving car. I don't have to pay attention to the road. Right. That's fine. I'll listen this band. It sounds like something I might actually like. Okay. And I'll make $5. Maybe right. I'll hate it, <laughs> you know, but who cares? Right. Like I could imagine that world. I think, I don't know exactly how we would get there, but I, I think it's pretty plausible to me. Yeah. I mean, I guess the trick is how is this band paying for that uh rich daddy i don't know i mean like right, how do bands right, right. ever pay for anything like i mean it's not a money-making proposition but people do it simply because they're attention whores to use your word right I, and that's what right. i'm thinking i think i think this is a fundamentally human drive yeah. to seek attention and honestly be willing to pay for it and do extremely crazy things to get it even when it seems totally irrational 
uh, to do so. Right. I mean, that's that explains all of YouTube. Right? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, right. That makes sense. Um, Very last thing. Yes. What's the last thing? Games. Games. Now, we... we the future we, is obviously games. We keep having these fancy tech demos. Yeah. That are like, oh, uh, a computer can play Go now. Right. Great. Who cares? Right? It doesn't... Like, it's impressive... And it's just, and I get that those demos are just meant to show like, hey, we can do this cool thing now, but. Right. Well, people who like Go care because now they can get a decent Go game uh, for their computer, which they weren't able to do before, right? So I, if I, I think that's the person who cares the most is the Go fan who is like, man, chess players have awesome computer games. Why can't I get a computer game with a really good AI opponent? Well, give it like two years, dude. You're going to get one that's coming. You know, that's, that's the person for whom it's the best news. Right. Yeah. But the thing is that like, yeah, you could, you could develop a, a, a machine that, uh, I imagine like if somebody cared to do this, you could probably develop like a pitching machine that like pitched a ball better than any baseball player. I think they have that. Um, I mean, they have pitching machines. I don't know if like it can make decisions about, you know, what kind of ball to throw and stuff. Okay. Yeah. I don't know. I think they're just for batting practice. So I think they just, I think they just fire it at you. Fire it at you. I know they they have that. I wasn't talking about that. I was talking about something that's a little smarter than that. I see. I see. Like a pitcher or a machine who like, like, yeah, can like, like change angles. Yeah, exactly. I'm sure if someone at MIT wanted to develop like the better pitcher machine, they could do it, but why would they do it? I mean, other than to just like show, Hey, we can do this like now. for training is the only thing I can think or of. like to get some press and then, right. and then no one would care. Right. I mean like, like what's the, like, cause that's not why people play or watch baseball or care about it at all. Right. The people care about games right? because human beings that are conscious with limitations do them and succeed or fail at them. And I, I, th- I think that there's going to be a lot of games services in the future because I think like, I think games can, I mean, we're, you know, when you say games now, everybody thinks of video games first and they think of single player video game experiences. I feel like that's like sort of the dominant thing that pops into people's heads. It's like some, you know, overweight guy on the couch with a controller in his hand in his parents' basement, like just playing some single player game and, you know, until he like sinks further and further into his couch and well, now I think becomes of, Wally. Now I think of Pokemon uh, Go. Or the, char- the characters from Wally. Um, well, now you think Pokemon Go. So now right? I think of like random kids with their phones out walking around into traffic or something <laughs> right right which is which is social um and and much more complex and like i don't know i mean we talked about you know paying people to go collect pokemon for you right right um the game i don't think has maybe enough skill to have you know trainers and coaches and uh people of that nature like sort of as support services for the game but we have that for sports right, right. we have like cool secondary industries around sports you know like people make their whole living say as a tennis coach for children or something you know what i mean and like te- yeah and so i mean more people will probably make their living doing that than you know playing professional tennis so right exactly yeah, yeah. so yeah, yeah. L- lest you think i'm just talking about the superstars here i think like you yeah. know we're talking about everyone potentially and so you know what are people going to do in the future if there's not like things that got to get built and things that have to be made to make the species survive we're going to be bored we're going to be playing games with each other and then there's going to be i feel like all these secondary services surrounding that and it doesn't matter if the robots can play the game because that totally defeats the purpose of a game yeah i don't think it matters at all uh the fact that you know ais can play games if anything that's just going to make video games like more interesting so they'll have better opponents to play in the game 
But I think the question is just where do the gains from this accrue? Because if it's a lot of people playing games and they're playing with each other and with advanced AI agents and they're doing that in a centralized software environment, there's the potential that a lot of the money funnels to one place and that you know even the support infrastructure could be owned or or licensed or you know so i i definitely agree that games are a big part of the future i have maybe some questions about right whether that actually helps us with the problem because we might find you know ea and uh activision or whatever do really really well and everybody gets a lot of entertainment out of that but that it doesn't necessarily provide a big sector of work yeah, no, I, I think that's a concern, and I have some thoughts about that, too. But I think this is probably where we need to wrap up yes. today's episode. Thank you for listening to this Express episode. Uh, please share our podcast and rate it in the old iTunes. You can find us on Twitter uh, at RTF underscore podcast. You can find us on Facebook at uh, facebook.com slash review the future. And you can send us an email at feedback at review the future dot com. We love hearing from you. Thanks very much. To subscribe or leave a comment on this episode, please visit reviewthefuture.com. You can also send emails to feedback at reviewthefuture.com. Thanks for listening.